This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. When a director's first feature film is nominated for the big award at the Oscars, Best Picture, that's always something to take note of. And that is certainly the case with the movie American Fiction, which is written and directed by Cord Jefferson. It was nominated for four other Oscars as well. Before making the film, Cord Jefferson had a real career as a TV writer, early on with Larry Wilmore's nightly show on Comedy Central, then working on The Good Place and Succession and many more. He began, though, as a journalist. He contributed to The Root, The New York Times Magazine, and particularly Gawker. And that's how he got to know the New Yorker staff writer, Jelani Cobb. Court Jefferson and I met almost 15 years ago when we were both part of a listserv for black writers. And we've kept in touch over the years, uh, encouraging each other's work and keeping tabs on what we were up to. In 2019, he was a writer for Watchmen, which was one of my all-time favorite television shows. And even though I've known him for many years, I've kept a much closer watch on what he's doing professionally and artistically since then. This year, his directorial debut, American Fiction, was released. And the film has garnered a great deal of attention and praise. American Fiction is based on a novel called Erasure, which is about a writer who's none too successful and his name is Thelonious Monk Ellison. He's beyond frustrated with the publishing world, so he churns out a really trashy novel under a pseudonym, a deliberately offensive book full of the stereotypes that are euphemistically described as urban. And that book becomes a literary sensation. Yes, well, first of all, let me just say that all of us here at Thompson Watt are thrilled with my pathology. It is about as perfect a book as I have seen in a long, long while. Just, Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that shit? No, 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 I don't. Jeffrey Wright plays the writer Monk Ellison, and here's Jelani Cobb talking with the director, Cord Jefferson. You know, the interesting thing um, I thought about the Ellison family is that they are affluent, educated, well-educated, um, and, you know, distinguished, and at the same time, dysfunctional, <laughs> troubled, uh, not an ideal family. And, you know, they have problems, but uh, none of which require a social worker. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they have, exactly. <laughs> they have a different exactly. strand of, uh, of difficulty, and I thought that was really uh, kind of well-represented in the line uh, where Monk says that, you know, his life is, to paraphrase, messed up, uh, just not yeah. in the ways that people think. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned this being something that black creatives deal with. Um, you know, and Monk is a, a character who very much feels 
that he's been constrained uh, and has really been told who he is, or at least who he is supposed to be, uh, based on these presumptions of what and who black people are. Uh, is that something you've related to in your own uh, creative journey? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this was when I, you know, it, it started when I was, you know, when I was a journalist, the, the, the one of the last pieces of journalism that I wrote was called The Racism Beat. And it, and it was a, how I had reached this point in my journalistic career when it was like every week I was being asked to write about the latest, you know, black person, unarmed black person murdered by the police or, uh, you know, a, a trigger happy, nervous neighbor, or just sort of some other, other white person. Or I was asked to write about, um, you know, somebody saying something racist about president Obama. And it just felt like, you know, it felt like, well, it felt spiritually degrading, right. It was just to sort of like to be writing about this misery and pain over and over. But more than that, it felt like, you know, what to write about um, Mike Brown that you didn't already write about Trayvon Martin or, or what to write about Breonna Taylor that you didn't already write about Mike Brown, right? Like, like you're just, you feel like you're just sort of like writing stuff that, that is a, um, you know, emotionally tough, but, but also you're sort of like writing stuff that seems like it's falling on deaf ears sometimes that you're just like, is, mm -hmm. is anybody even paying attention to what I'm saying? So when I got into film and television, it was incredibly exciting because it felt like finally, you know, we are not beholden to any realities of the world. We're not, we're not sort of, we can write about black people doing anything. We can write about black people living in fantastical, you know, other realms, or, or you can write about black people in space or in an underworld, like whatever you want to write about, you can write about because we are not, we are not tasked with sort of like representing the realities of the world. But I was, you know, surprised to find, lo and behold, that it wasn't long before people were coming to me and saying, do you want to write a movie about an unarmed black person being killed by the police? Do you want to write a movie mm -hmm. about uh, drug dealers? Do you want to write a movie about, about slaves? And it felt like, oh, even here, even, even in this uh, sort of world of fiction and fantasy, there's still a rigid perspective as to what black life looks like and to what black stories are like the primacy of suffering i think yeah exactly right. exactly and it's just like and it's and it's a specific kind of suffering you know add to your point when you talked about sort of the problems that the ellisons have the ellisons are suffering you know there is tragedy mm -hmm. in their lives but it's just not the same rote suffering that we that sort of people expect it's just like well wait a minute Where's the conversation about food stamps, right? Or sort of like, where's the, where's the, the dangerous interaction with the police officer? It's kind of like all of these things that like we've come to expect are not there, but it doesn't mean that they're not, they're not suffering. It just means that it's a different kind of suffering and that there's a diversity in sort of like their suffering and the, just as there's a diversity in the humanity of blackness. So, so I think that that to me was a real, it was something that I really could not, I guess I wasn't surprised by, but it was something that I felt like uh, pained by. And so when I found this novel, you know, three months before I found Erasure, I got a note back on a script from an, from an executive through an emissary, not from the executive, but I got a note back from, from an executive that said, um, we want you to make this character blacker. Uh, and that was, you know, I said to the emissary, I said, I will indulge that note if whoever gave it to you will sit in front of me and tell me what it means to be blacker. Mm -hmm. Tell me how mm -hmm. to make the character blacker. 
and I will have that conversation. And of course, that note went away because the person was terrified to have that conversation. And invariably, I guess the idea of that was going to be um, more of particular types of suffering or deprivation. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think. I think for me, and I've you know written you know a whole lot of those stories myself. It's never been simply telling that story. I think it's the idea of the, telling that story to the exclusion of telling other stories. Exactly. Which exactly. becomes the biggest. Yeah. Exactly. That I, to me is the that to me, especially nowadays. I think that those stories are more important than ever. You know, I think that in a, in a country that's actively trying to erase slavery as it was from children's textbooks, I think that it's very important to remind people over and over again that this happened and the reality of, of what it looked like. You know, black history in America now includes slavery and it includes being the president of the United, of the United States. And mm -hmm. between those two poles, there are many, many other stories that have yet to be told. Mm-hmm. You know, the 40, may, 40 million variations on the theme. Exactly. Let me ask you, what drew you to this novel? And, and of all the kind of projects that you could have taken on, you know, what were the themes in Erasure that felt familiar to you? Well, Erasure is this very interesting sort of juxtaposition of two stories, right? Which is, uh, it is Monk, uh, the protagonist. It's his professional life and sort of his professional ambition, which is, simply to just to write the kind of novels that he's interested in writing, which uh, many of which are, are contemporary uh, adaptations of classical Greek literature and classical Greek theater. Um, and you have him sort of focused on trying to write the work that he wants to write and being told that it's not black enough, essentially. And then it, that story is juxtaposed with what's going on in his personal life. But it's juxtaposed with this more complex view of black life. It's sort of like his, mm -hmm. his life and his family are um, what he mm -hmm. wants to see in the world. So it's, so it's sort of like this, it's this two-handed story of like, here's the problem and here's a solution to the problem. And sort of mm -hmm. here's what we want to see in the, in the same novel. And so to me, I was incredibly attracted to the, the professional themes and, and the satirical themes and what it, about the limitations that, that the world puts on black creatives and black art and sort of the, the expectations that the world puts on black art. But also on top of that, I was really drawn to the family stuff. You know, the, the, my mother didn't have Alzheimer's, but my mother died of cancer eight mm -hmm. years ago. And like Monk in the, in the book, I moved home to help take care of my mother um, mm -hmm. as she suffered. Uh, I have two siblings, like Monk has two siblings in the novel. Uh, we have a push and pull relationship the way that the siblings in the novel did, where sometimes we're closer, sometimes we're, we're farther apart. We have, like the, like the father in the book, we have a very overbearing father figure who was, mm -hmm. um, who we, you know, we sort of lived under underneath his sort of very, very high expectations. And sometimes um, I would say uh, uh, impossibly high expectations. And so the more that I read, um, it started to feel like the, the sort of Venn diagram of Monk's life and my life. All these overlaps to the point that it started to feel a little eerie as, as, as I read. Um, so why did you choose to call the film American Fiction as opposed to Erasure? Um, a, because we were worried about what uh, that people would confuse it with Eraser, that Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> movie from the 90s. <sighs> In the world of all the all the sort of reboots and remakes, we were like, well, we don't want anybody thinking like, oh, yeah, I remember that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't want to see that. That was one of the reasons. The second reason was that um, 
Erasure is a great title, but I think that you need something that feels a little bit splashier and catchier for for films. Unfortunately, I just think that um, more self-explanatory than than I guess Erasure was. The two final titles, when it really came down to choose the the two that that I were sort of was most um, was most excited about were the Western Canon and. Uh, and American mm. fiction. And everybody thought the Western canon was a little too um, sort of uh, literary. It was too too mm. sort of cutesy by half. And so American fiction was the one idea that I came in and everybody kind of rallied around that one um, pretty quickly. Mm. So you have an astounding cast uh, for this film. Um, and it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. You have in this cast Jeffrey Wright, Tracy Ellis Ross, Issa Rae, Sterling K. Brown, and you know, the great Leslie Uggams, uh, and you know just to name a few of the people. Yeah. Can you tell me about how that cast came together? I know that Jeffrey Wright was your first choice for Monk. Yeah, yeah. So he, I started reading the novel with Jeffrey's voice in my head. That's how early mm-hmm. I started thinking of him for the for the character, and I thought that our luck was over once we got jeffrey i thought well we got our first choice so everything else is going to be our sixth seventh choice and then i started you know we started getting word like actually Issa ray said yes sterling k brown said yes mm. eric alexander said yes everybody was very excited to work with jeffrey jeffrey legitimized the movie in a very real way it was no longer just a good script and and a director who had never directed yeah. anything before it was jeffrey wright's involved and that was like caused people's ears to perk up a little bit here you go yeah. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. And you don't make the rules. But then what they told me, you know, a lot of them was that was that it was the script and it was the characters. You know, John Ortiz, um, who's wonderful. Who, as, who was as, amazing in the film. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, he's wonderful as Arthur, who plays Monk's agent. Uh, he told me that he'd read the script and then he called his agent and he said, he said, wait a minute, what, what part do they want me to play? And his agent said, they want you to play Arthur, the book agent. And he was like, they want me to be the book agent? He said, you know, it was, the, it was the first time that somebody had just come to me and said, like, we just want you to be a guy. We don't want mm-hmm. you to talk anything about, it's nothing about being Puerto Rican. It's nothing about being sort of like raised in the projects in, in Brooklyn or whatever, or sort of like your tragic childhood. It's just like, yes, you're Puerto Rican but you're just a guy that's not coming up. We talk about it all the time. Black actors are just not utilized in the ways that they, they could be. And not, not black actors of color are not utilized in the ways that they should mm-hmm. be. We talk about it every year. They're underrepresented. They're underutilized. They're, they're asked to play the same sort of parts over and over and over again. I say to everybody, look at what happens when you give these characters real roles. Mm-hmm. Look at the kind of actors you can get for these parts. the writer and director Cord Jefferson, who made the film American Fiction. He's talking with Jelani Cobb, and their conversation continues in just a moment. 
This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, and we'll return now to a conversation with Cord Jefferson. He's the writer and director of American Fiction, which was just nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Jeffrey Wright, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Jefferson is speaking today with Jelani Cobb, a staff writer at The New Yorker. You know, you mentioned uh, Erica Alexander, you know, who is an amazing actress. And, you know, there's a particular scene uh, in the film where uh, Monk realizes that she is reading a novel uh, that he has anonymously written. uh, And he has this really uh, incredible reaction. And uh, I wondered, uh, you know, what you were thinking about as you directed that scene uh, you know, how that came together, because it really is uh, a kind of striking uh, confrontation on multiple levels uh, between Monk and Coraline, uh, who is Erica Alexander's character. Monk is a very pugnacious guy. From the, from the very beginning of the movie, he's arguing with his students, his colleagues, uh, his family. You know, th- this is a guy who steamrolls everybody in his life. He's arrogant. Um, he's frustrated and he's angry because he's so, um, frustrated and wounded because sort of up until that part in the film, Monk very frequently just gets away with, with yelling at people and being arrogant and rude. Um, I knew in that scene, I wanted somebody who could really stand up to him and sort of be formidable in the way that he's formidable. And Eric Alexander was was one one of the reasons why I wanted her for the role was because she is a formidable woman. She is mm-hmm. she is um, she, a, she's age appropriate. She's not you know it's not. I didn't want to do the Hollywood thing where we're getting twenty women in their twenties and thirties for uh, a guy in his fifties. Uh, she's somebody who has lived experience, who's smart, who's intelligent, and who can sort of serve as the the other side of this argument too, which is that. I didn't want it to be like respectability politics, pull up your pants movie. 
that sort of mm -hmm. this is good this is good black art and this is bad black art and so i think that showing somebody in that scene also who is smart who's accomplished who's a lawyer a professional person the way that monk is a professional person um who we who we understand has a good rapport with monk who likes this book this book that monk hates who sees value in this book that monk hates who sort of sees it as being art when Monk sees it as being garbage. Um, mm -hmm. I think that to give voice to that was incredibly important for um, the movie to not feel like it was scolding, um, scolding certain kinds of blackness or so scolding certain kinds of black stories. Another scene that I think is incredibly important to the film and to, to that, to that end is is the scene with it where him and Centara sort of butt heads and, and discuss sure, their certainly. their sort of like different ideological opinions. Yeah, Centara is the author of the novel that he uh, that kind of sends him on this spiral in the first place. Exactly, yeah. and so I just it also sort of allows us to see what happens when Monk is sort of not honest with the people in his life, and then sort of how that how that um, lack of how that sort of that facade and that dishonesty are sort of leading him on this dangerous path toward, you know, the, this toward a life that his father led, which is one of constant lying mm -hmm. and constant hiding and ultimately, you know, a, a very, very tragic end. So you mentioned tragic end. It's important to note in the course of this conversation uh, that this film is a comedy. It's a satire. Yeah. And uh, it is a tremendously <laughs> funny one. Thank you. Um, you know, one where, uh, you know, I laughed, you know, throughout the movie. Uh, you know, the people in the audience at the screening where I saw, you know, laughed at it a lot. Uh, I had a really interesting conversation with a person who said that they laughed at it, uh, who works in publishing, who they laughed at it despite the fact that they thought, they might have been the butt of the jokes themselves. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about what goes into grappling with the weighty themes that we've been talking about, you know, for the past however long, and also presenting that in a way that makes people laugh. Despite sort of like the tenor of things in the year 2023 and 2024, I think that race is actually really, really uh, a, a fertile target for laughter. On the one hand, race is not real. You know, we sort of, we've read enough and, and the, there's enough scientists who've told us enough to, to understand that race is a, a social construct, that there is no, um, there's no basis for it in biology and that we are kidding ourselves if we think that it's real at all. That being said, race is also incredibly real in that we've we've constructed our institutions and our societies uh, believing that it is real. And so on the one hand, race is not real and insignificant and very real and incredibly important. Sometimes, sometimes life or death depends on race. And so to me, that inherent tension and absurdity is perfect for comedy. I grew up in a household in which my dad played a lot of Richard Pryor vinyl. Hmm. And I watched Ditto. Hollywood <laughs> Shuffle over and over. And in which sort of I, we watched Eddie Murphy and sort of a lot of these like great Paul Mooney. Earth to save itself. Have you noticed it's been fighting back with earthquakes and the rest of the stuff? It's fighting back. It don't need. Don't worry about that. Worry about people, each other. Can't worry about the animals or anything else. Something with four legs and got teeth. It'll be fine. 
And I blame it on all, I blame it all on white people. I blame it on white people. I do. Because you guys started out messing this stuff up. Chopping down trees to build boats to go get black folks. <laughs> and now the picnic is over. You want us to help you recycle. I'm not recycling a damn thing. These things in which people sort of approach these subjects with a comedic lens uh, was just part of my upbringing. And I think that, 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 I, that I sort of saw that as being a way to diminish the power that it had over all of us and to sort of mock it and sort of mock the, mock the idea of it um, while also finding ways to laugh to keep from crying, right? You just have to underline that and point it out to people and, 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 and have them laugh at it. That does sort of, um, it also invites a lot of people into the party. You mentioned uh, Hollywood Shuffle and uh, elsewhere you've referred to that film as a spiritual predecessor. Uh, to American fiction, and you know it's a, a cult classic uh, by Robert Townsend, uh, and mm-hmm. it deals with the subject matter of kind of stereotyping and uh, you know how black actors uh, have to grapple with that. Only an Uncle Tom would do this shit. They just looking for somebody to sell out. Sell out. The only role they gonna let us do is a slave, a butler, or some street hood or something. Don't sell out, brother. Don't be a butler or a slave. Jesse Wilson. Jesse Wilson, you're next. That's me. Good luck, brother. <laughs> uh, were there particular themes or even like scenes uh, in American fiction uh, that were inspired by you know what you took from Hollywood Shuffle? Uh, I would say I don't think necessarily scenes, but I think that um, one of the things that Hollywood Shuffle does so well is it never sacrifices commitment to character for comedy. Mm. So what I mean by that is is that it is a very, very funny movie. Um, It's almost sort of like sketch comedy at certain points. Like that's how sort of like much it becomes a Mm -hmm. comedy film. Um, It gives you a real perspective into his family and to his, his sort of like this emotional Sophie's choice that he's making between professional success and sort of personal dignity. Like there's, there's all these commitments and, and, and efforts to make, make you understand that this is a real person that I really felt was important when I wanted to make my movie. Mm-hmm. For me, there was three, um, three pillars that sort of were maintaining the spirit of erasure. The one was that it needed to be funny because the book is incredibly funny. The second is that it needed to be metatextual in some ways, like the book. I knew that that was important to the novel, so I wanted the movie to feel a little meta. And then the third was that it couldn't be didactic. You know, the, the book takes great pains to never give, say, this is right or this is wrong. I needed to make a movie that didn't spoon-feed morality. And, of course, he was writing uh, that book, Erasure, in response to a lot of what he saw going on in the fiction world and the same sorts of Absolutely. ideas. So it really is a kind of meta uh, situation. I'll tell you how meta uh, it is, is that Percival, uh, last week, Percival got stopped in a coffee shop by somebody who thought he was Jeffrey Wright. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. That's pretty amazing. Cord Jefferson, the director of American Fiction, which is based on a novel by Percival Everett. The film was nominated for five Oscars. Jelani Cobb is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the dean of Columbia Journalism School. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for joining me this hour. See you next time.
The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.